Welcome to Saturday evening Torah class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 35, Genesis chapters 38 and 39. Well, last time we began to study Genesis chapter 38, which is a story about the fourth son of Jacob, now alternately called Israel, and that fourth son is Judah, Judah. Okay? And it's from the tribe of Judah that we have the Jews. Okay? So, since it's been a while since we've been together, let's reread chapter 38. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38, and we're going to read it from the beginning. It's a great story. Really an interesting story. Genesis chapter 38, starting with verse 1. It was at this time Judah, Judah went off from his brothers. And he settled near a man named Hirah, who was an Adulami. There Judah saw one of the daughters of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and slept with her. She conceived and had a son who he named Er. She conceived again and had a son and called him Onan. Then she conceived yet again and had a son whom she called Shelah. He was in uh, Kaziv when he gave birth to him. Now Yehuda took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Yehuda's firstborn, was evil from Adonai's perspective, so Adonai killed him. Yehuda said to Onan, you go and sleep with your brother's wife. Perform the duty of a husband's brother to her and preserve your brother's line of descent. However, Onan knew that the child would not count as his. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground so as not to give his brother offspring. What he did was evil from Adonai's perspective, so he killed him too. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Stay a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I don't want him to die too, like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived at home with her father. And in due time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. After Judah had been comforted, he went up to be with his sheep shearers in Timnah, he and his friend Hirah the Adulami. Tamar was told, your father-in-law has gone up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, completely covered her face with her veil, and sat at the entrance to Ainaim, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, but she still was not being given to him as his wife. So, he went over, uh, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute because she'd covered her face. So he went over to her where she was sitting and said, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, come, let me sleep with you. And she answered, what will you pay to sleep with me? And he said, I'll send you a kid from the flock of goats. And she said, will you also give me something as a guarantee until you do send it? 
And he answered, what should I give you as a guarantee? And she said, your seal with its cord and the staff you're carrying in your hand. So he gave them to her, then went and slept with her, and she conceived by him. She got up and went away, took off her veil, and put back on her widow's clothes. Judah sent the kid with his friend, the Adolami, to receive the guarantee items back from the woman, but he couldn't find her. He asked the people near where she'd been, where's that prostitute who was on the road to Anaim? But they answered, there hasn't been any prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I couldn't find her. Also, the people there said, there hasn't been any prostitute here. Yehuda said, all right, let her keep the things so that we won't be publicly shamed. I sent the kid, but you couldn't find her. About three months later, Yehuda was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been acting like a whore. Moreover, she's pregnant as a result of her prostitution. And Yehuda said, bring her out and let her be burned alive. When she was brought out, she sent this message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man to whom these things belong. Determine, I beg you, who these are, the signet, the cords, and the staff. Then Judah acknowledged owning them, and he said, She's more righteous than I, because I didn't let her become the wife of my son, Shelah, and he never slept with her again. When she went into labor, it became evident that she was going to have twins, and as she was in labor, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took his hand and tied a scarlet thread on it, saying, This one came out first, but then he withdrew his hand. And his brother came out, so she said, How did you manage to break out first? All right, therefore, he, he was named Peretz, breaking out. Then out came his brother with the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was given the name Zerah, scarlet. Well, what we have here is a story of bloodlines and genealogy. But it's also a story that relates cultural information from that era, as well as historical data that we're going to find linked in later times to cities and places and people. Now, almost all the names that we'll find here in this chapter, Adulam, Hezib, Timnah, and Enam, are going to appear later in the Bible as all being located within the territory of Judah. All right. So while this section of Israelite history seems a little disconnected, this chapter 38, from, from the direction the Torah was taking, okay, making Joseph's life the central theme for the rest of Genesis, in fact, it's there to show Judah's rise to prominence and make connections even to the life of the future King David. Now, let me remind you that at the time of this story, Israel is still several centuries away from possessing the land of Canaan, or even, of course, from dividing Canaan up into 12 districts, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the time frame of this story, of Genesis 38, is somewhere between the day that Joseph was sold to the slave traders 
and that time when Jacob decided to move his entire family to Egypt to survive the famine. It falls somewhere in there. Now what we see in this narrative is that Judah had children with a Canaanite woman. A most definite no-no to God. Okay. And we're not told the name of this woman. Only that her father's name was Shua. As a matter of fact, we'll see her listed in some places with the name Batshua, which simply means daughter of Shua. Okay. Now, without doubt, we see that Judah had made a conscious decision to part ways with his family for a time. And this is reflected in the very first words of the chapter when it says, Judah left his brothers. Right? Now, he knew full well that marriage to a Canaanite woman was not to be contemplated among Jacob's sons. All right? And as we all know, when we want to do something that we know is both wrong and unacceptable to our families, we separate ourselves from them so we don't have to face them. That's what Judah did. Now this unnamed woman produced three sons for Judah. But none of these should have been suitable to carry on the line of covenant promise because they were all of Canaanite blood. But without doubt, this must have never have occurred to Judah. <laughs> Nor apparently did it matter to him that his good old uncle Esau had been passed over for the firstborn blessing, partially because he did the same thing. He married a Canaanite woman, or women actually. And here was Judah doing the same thing. Now, how often we tend to do what Judah did. We claim faith in God, but then we separate that faith from the everyday matters of our life. All right? And what troubles and sorrows that mindset and behavior inevitably brings to us, just as it was about to do for Judah. Yet, as was going to happen on a regular basis, we find foreign women were brought into Israel assimilated, and eventually they were considered Israelites. Now, this principle of being adopted into Israel, or grafted in, as Paul calls it in Romans 11, or whatever term you want to use, was one of the earliest principles set down by Jehovah. At the end of this chapter, we're going to talk a little more about this matter of the Canaanite women in Israel. Well, as the three sons of Judah matured, the firstborn son, Er, was given a wife selected by his father, Judah. And this wife's name was Tamar. Tamar means palm tree. But we're told that God killed Er because he was evil. So Tamar was now a widow. What's key here is that Tamar was a childless widow, or more correctly, more correctly, a sonless widow. I mean, for all we know, she may well have produced some girl babies before her husband's death. Now, Onan, the second son of Judah with that Canaanite woman, was then instructed to go and take his brother's widow, Tamar, 
as his own wife. Now, this was simply a custom of the day. And generally speaking, this was not optional. Okay? It was the law that his brother that the brother do this. The idea was that just as a female could be a substitute wife, a concubine, a baby producer, okay, just like we saw with Hagar and then later Bilah and Zilpah, this was done usually for a woman who was unable to bear children for her husband. So could a substitute husband impregnate a woman whose husband had died and left her without a son. Okay. Now this tradition was based on the substitute husband usually being a member of the deceased's family, normally a brother. The, the traditional name for this law among Hebrews is the Leveret marriage. Now, it might appear from its name that this is taken from the Hebrew tribal name Levi. It's not. Okay, the actual Hebrew word for this ordinance is Yibum. Okay? Our modern translation of Leveret is taken from the Latin word Lever, okay, which is the designation for a husband's brother. So Levi and Leverite are just similarly spelled and they have nothing to do with each other. This is not a law from Levi or Leviticus, anything like that. Now, the Leverite marriage was not at all unique to Israel. Okay? It existed in other cultures as well. And this is well attested to with um, well-preserved Hittite documents and even documents from the Middle Assyrian Age. And this Leverite law can be found in Deuteronomy 25 of all places. And here, it, here uh, I didn't uh, put it on a slide, but here it is. You can turn to it some other time, but let me just read it to you for now. Deuteronomy 25 says this. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. But if that man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He's not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And, he, and she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And in Israel his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. <laughs> now how would you like to go around with that name stuck to you, huh? 
The sandal flinging thing, obviously, it's a rebuff, all right? And it indicates the poor character of someone who refuses to do his family duty. It's a public humiliation, okay? But in verse 9, we're told that Onan, the brother of the deceased heir, refuses to impregnate Tamar, and then God killed him because he too was evil in God's eyes. Why did Onan refuse to do this? Well, it says that because the son produced would not have been his. Now, let me dissect that a little bit. The brother who died, heir, was the firstborn. Onan was the secondborn. But as the eldest surviving brother, he was now the firstborn. Okay? But if he produced a child, and the name of the deceased brother, who happened to have been the firstborn, that child would have been entitled to part of Judah's estate. In other words, Onan would have received less if his deceased elder brother's family line had continued. Now, it's not that it was uncommon for family maneuvering to gain the most wealth and power when the father died, but to intentionally deny this widow a son did two things. It meant that her deceased husband's family line would end a disaster to the ancient mind. And she would have no son to care for her as she grew older. Okay? This was tantamount to knowing that sooner or later she's going to live in extreme poverty. So for Onan to knowingly do all this made him selfish and callous to a very high degree. And Jehovah took his life, we're told, as a consequence. Well now, by tradition, it now would have fallen, would have been the Levite duty of Judah's third son, Shelah, to marry the now twice widowed Tamar, but it was judged that he was too young to marry, so Judah sent Tamar to go home and live with her own father until Shelah was old enough to marry her. But as the words, for he thought, referring to what Judah was saying, or what the Bible says about Judah, what that indicates is that Judah had absolutely no intention of allowing his third and final son to marry Tamar. Well, time passes. Judah's wife, the mother of those three boys, dies. And the third son, Shelah, matured and apparently was old enough to marry, but Judah wouldn't allow it. He had seen the result of his other two sons, Mary and Tamar. They died. I mean, I think it's safe to say that Judah, that Judah didn't know why they died. We're told it was because they were evil. But I, I don't see any indication that Judah knew this. Okay, We have to understand that Judah was currently living a life utterly oblivious to God and to his commands and to his laws. To Judah, Tamar was just really bad luck. Right? And, and he wasn't going to chance losing his last son, his last heir, all right, by letting him marry this woman who seemed to bring God's wrath down upon her husbands. Well, after the formal period of mourning his wife, probably 30 days. Judah goes to a place called Timnah, 
to supervise and participate in the sheep shearing process. Because it was sheep shearing season, apparently. Now, Tamar found out about this, and so it says she took off her widow's garb. Now, we know from other biblical accounts that women were required to wear special clothing when their husbands died. Typically, it was only during the 30-day mourning period that they had to wear it. But, possibly because Tamar had been denied her right to have a child from her deceased husband's brother, she continued to live in this state of mourning. I'm not sure. But Judah was doing a terrible and shameful thing by not allowing Shelah to marry Tamar. Tamar was greatly disgraced by this. Okay? So, she developed a plan. She would find a way to sleep with her father-in-law, Judah, and directly from his seed perform the all-important task of carrying on the bloodlines of her dead husband's family. Now, understanding that Judah would never do this knowingly, Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute and sets herself at a place called Ainaim. Now, this must have been a well-known spot for prostitutes to find clients because Ainaim means eyes that look. In other words, it was a place where men would look for this kind of women. But even more, she was actually thought to be a temple prostitute. That is, the Canaanites had adopted prostitution as a worship practice. For them, it symbolized fertility. And it was connected with the pagan temple to Baal. Now, this was a duty, and to their minds, in many ways, an honor for these women to be prostitutes for Baal. And it was considered a legitimate practice by customer and client alike. So Judah, so far off the reservation in his current state of mind, thought nothing of it. Most of the mystery Babylon religions adopted sacred sex as part of their religious practices. And there is a movement within the fringes of the new spiritualist and new age movements around the world, and including in this nation, to bring the practice back. Okay, now, their stated goal is to combine the erotic with the sacred, another fundamental of the mystery Babylon religions. Now, this is just a case in point of how easily we can adopt traditions within the church, if we're not careful, that are not at all in line with God's word or will, usually something taken from out of the pagan world's customs and make them as though they're a good thing. I mean, the people thought they were doing a good thing with this temple prostitution. And while we can attach some sincerity to these comfortable traditions, often, as here with Judah, these things are an abomination to God. Well, Tamar's plan works. She tricks Judah into thinking she's just a temple prostitute, and he purchases her favors, and she becomes pregnant. Three months later, when it's clear to all that Tamar is with child, someone tells Judah about it, and in order to save the family honor, Judah orders her burned to death for fornication. After all, she was an unmarried woman and pregnant, and that was proof enough of her offense. The notion in that era 
was simply that Tamar was bringing dishonor to Judah and his household. However, Judah finds out that he's the father. And he realizes that by withholding his last son, Shelah, from Tamar, he's caused her to take this drastic action. He now declares that it is he that has done wrong, not Tamar, and so he repents and she is spared. Okay. Even more, Judah says that Tamar was righteous in what she did. This is another one of those statements in the Bible that while factually true and accurate about what happened, the person making the statement is just plain wrong. Okay? Tamar was not righteous in what she did any more than Judah was righteous in what he eventually did. God simply used them, despite their sin and rebellion, to achieve his divine purposes. Tamar goes on to have twin boys. Peretz and Zerah. Now to Judah, his wrong had been to cause shame upon Tamar by not giving his son Shelah as a husband to her. That is, he broke the tradition. But the wrong that was actually being righted here was of a spiritual nature. Because Judah had intended to carry on his family line via his Canaanite wife, which would have produced Canaanite children, and God wasn't going to have any of it. Okay. Judah was utterly oblivious to this sin before God, because to him, everything turned out okay. All right. So he thought. Now, the ancient rabbis give us a very helpful piece of information here that's not contained in this story. Tamar was a Semite. Okay, a descendant of Shem, the sanctified line of good. She wasn't a Canaanite like Judah's wife was, the wife that produced those three Canaanite sons. Okay. Up to now, Judah had produced his three sons by means of Canaanite woman. Okay. And what happened to these three sons of a Canaanite mother? Well, two of them died. And the one that should have impregnated Tamar and would have produced the line that carried on the line of Judah, never got the opportunity to do that because Judah refused to let it happen for all the wrong reasons. The result is that Judah himself unwittingly made Tamar pregnant. The result is that despite Judah's intention that the line of covenant promise, which he didn't care much about at this moment, would have been polluted by Canaanite blood, he wound, it wound up that Judah impregnated a Semite woman, Tamar. And from that, the Semite sons came that would carry on the line of promise. Now, we've seen in previous chapters to what length God went so as not to allow Canaanite blood to be mixed with Israelite blood, particularly when it would affect the line of covenant promise. Jehovah even did it when the covenant line wasn't directly affected. We saw this in the planned marriage between Jacob's daughter Dinah and the king of Shechem's son when it was averted, okay, when all the males of Shechem were killed by Simeon and Levi. But since Judah is the father of Tamar's children and since Tamar is a Semite, the children from their union would be acceptable to God. So we see 
this particular line of covenant promise that began with Abraham, went on to Isaac, then to Jacob, now to Judah. The purity of that line that would eventually produce the Messiah is preserved by Tamar's rather bold act. And as we look in other chapters of the Bible, where we see the lengthy genealogy of Jesus, we get confirmation of this. Because we see that it was Peretz, right, the firstborn of Tamar's twin sons, the one that didn't have the scarlet thread on his hand, right, is a direct ancestor of Jesus. Okay. Peretz, son of Judah, by Tamar, his widowed daughter-in-law is the one who carried forth the line of covenant promise all right, for the tribe of Judah. Now further, what we see is God's governing dynamic of sanctification at work. Because as we saw in the past with other twins, Perez is divided and separated away from all the other children of Judah to be the conduit to continue on this all-important line of covenant promise first given to Abraham. But we also see the governing dynamic of divine providence playing out as Judah and Tamar each attempt to satisfy some of their cultural traditions and satisfy some of their own selfish lusts and ambitions along the way. Neither of them, neither Tamar nor Judah, had the intent to obey God. Nor did either realize that they were going to produce the next generation of the line of covenant promise, Peretz. I mean, there could not be a better example and demonstration of divine providence than this story. So there's more significance to this chapter than meets the eye. But now let's move on to Genesis 39. Becky, would you open that front door just a little bit? I'm trying to keep the heat up because we have... Out of the three air conditioners, two of them went on the fritz last week. So we got one that's going to try to keep this place warm for the folks in the morning as it gets to be 30 degrees tonight. So it's going to be interesting. Okay, Genesis chapter 39. Let's read Genesis chapter 39. We're actually going to go all the way through it tonight. We're going to finish it. Joseph was brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him from, uh, bought him rather, from the Ishmaelim, Ishmaelites, who had brought him there. Adonai was with Joseph, and he became wealthy while he was in the household of his master the Egyptian. His master saw how Adonai was with him, that Adonai prospered everything he did, and Joseph pleased him as he served him, and his master appointed him manager of his household. He entrusted all his possessions to Joseph. From the time he appointed him manager of his household and all his possessions, Adonai blessed the Egyptian's household for Joseph's sake. Adonai's blessing was on all he owned, whether in the house or in the field. So he left all of his possessions in Joseph's care because he had him, he paid no attention to his affairs except for the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome as well. In time the day came when his master's wife took a look at Joseph and said, Sleep with me. 
But he refused, saying to his master's wife, Look, because my master has me, he doesn't know what's going on in this house. He has put all his possessions in my charge. In this house, I am his equal. He hasn't withheld anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? But he, she kept pressing him day after day. Nevertheless, he didn't listen to her. He refused to sleep with her or even to be with her. However, one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men living in the house was there indoors, she grabbed him by his robe and said, Sleep with me. But he fled, leaving his robe in her hand and got himself outside. When she saw that he had left his robe in her hand and had escaped, she called the men of her house and said to them, Look at this! My husband brought in a Hebrew to make fools of us. He came in and wanted to sleep with me. But I yelled out loudly. When he heard me yelling like that, he left his robe with me and he ran out. So she put the robe aside until his master came home. Then she said to him, This Hebrew slave you brought us came in to make a fool out of me. But when I yelled out, he left his robe with me and fled outside. When his master heard what his wife said as she showed him, here's what your slave did to me, he became furious. Joseph's master took him, put him in prison, in the place where the king's prisoners were kept. And there he was in prison. But Adonai was with Joseph, showing him grace, giving him favor in the sight of the prison warden. The prison warden made Joseph supervisor of all the prisoners in the prison so that whatever they did there, he was in charge of it. The prison warden paid no attention to anything Joseph did because Adonai was with him and whatever he did, Adonai prospered. Well, the Torah now resumes the tale. After our, after our interlude with Judah and Tamar, the inter, it resumes the tale of Joseph in chapter 39. So, his time... Joseph's time in Canaan is over. And his life in Egypt begins when he's but a teenager. And this is not going to end until his death. Well, this chapter begins with Joseph down in Egypt and Potiphar purchasing him as a house servant. And the first verse says something here that seems so obvious to us that our eye almost skips over it or we pay no heed to it. But it says this, Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard, an Egyptian. I mean, here we are in Egypt, and we have to be told that Potiphar is an Egyptian? I mean, what else would we have expected than for the number two in command over all of Egypt, Potiphar, that he would be anything but an Egyptian. Yet Moses, who wrote this down, made a point of it. The answer lies in the fact that at one time, long before Israel became a sovereign nation, Egypt was conquered. And it found itself under the control of non-Egyptians. The thing is, it was only in later times that Egypt actually sought position as a world power. Up to Joseph's time, 
Egypt had been a very highly developed civilization that had contact with the outer world. It had sent emissaries and even developed trade with the outer world. But the goal seems to have been only to make Egypt within its own borders a great nation. Okay? Historically, up to the time of Joseph, there appears to have been no aggressive imperialistic designs on Egypt's part that we can really detect. However, as is the case since there have been nations, that goal turned out not to be a two-way street. Okay? They soon found out that simply being a peace-loving nation trying to get along with your neighbors didn't immunize them from conflict or aggression. Egypt was attacked and they were routed by Bedouins. Semites, who had come from the area of Syria and Arabia. Now, the war wasn't a result of any dispute between Egypt and these Semites, but simply because these Bedouins wanted what Egypt had. Okay? And these Semite rulers controlled Egypt for around eh, 150 to 200 years. Okay, that's right. Semites, sons of Shem, cousins of Israel, sat as Pharaoh on the throne of Egypt, not Egyptians. Okay? The Egyptians called these foreign rulers of Egypt the Hyksos. H-Y-K-S-O-S. H-Y-K means kings, and Sos means shepherd. So these foreigners were called, were literally called by the Egyptians, shepherd kings. And we don't know a lot about them. Nor are we able to precisely get them in time, but it's getting, it's getting better. There seems to be new findings every year. Now, Part of the reason for this is that the records, the Egyptian records from the Hyksos periods are fairly scant. And, and, and that might seem a little strange in itself because the Egyptians were tremendous recorders of history. They were great record keepers. But on the other hand, as was typical of most ancient nations, the Egyptians did not record defeats and they generally did not record times of subjugation. Okay. What we know of this time comes from archaeology and from records from private Egyptian citizens who lived through that era. But even with some inherent historical inconsistencies and contradictory scientific findings, scholars generally agree all right, that during the time of Joseph, that we're reading about right here, and for perhaps a hundred years or a little more after Joseph's death, it was the Semite shepherd kings that were ruling Egypt. Okay, so with Bedouins, Semites, in control at the time Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, it explains why Moses thought it was important to mention that Potiphar was not a Bedouin, he was an Egyptian. And it also explains how, as we're soon going to discover, 
that the Pharaoh seemed to have little trouble in giving Joseph, a foreigner, a Hebrew, an Israelite, a Semite, such an incredible amount of authority over Egyptians. And because the best current evidence we have is that the Pharaoh at this time was not an Egyptian. Both he and Joseph were Semites. Now, with that as a background, let's move on a little bit. Joseph, it says, is a very good-looking young man. And Potiphar's bored wife all right, is quite taken with him. All right. He also, in some way which we're not told, had become prosperous. So apparently he was able to do more than simply serve Potiphar. Now all we know is that God was with Joseph. And he did well for himself and for Potiphar. Now we're going to find this statement that God was with Joseph four times in this chapter. And obviously it is to make the point that even though Joseph was abandoned by his family and placed into a strange land with strange gods, the God of Israel was still with him. All right? Protecting, controlling, guiding events. Bad circumstances don't mean God's turned his back on you. Okay? Even the fact that the Semite Hyksos were in power was divine providence. Though, of course, Joseph was oblivious to it. Well, Potiphar's wife was infatuated with Joseph and constantly after him. And he refuses all of her advances and it happens again and again. One day, Mrs. Potiphar right, tires of being rebuffed by this purchased house servant. And so she grabs him. Right? And he runs for his life. But in the doing, she grabs a piece of his garment. Then she decides to take revenge for being scorned. She claims that Joseph tried to rape her and tells her husband and Joseph's thrown into prison. Notice also that she declares in verse 14 that this Hebrew was brought in by her husband to make fools of her household. This is another indication of the hatred the Egyptians had for any Semite. And this due to their current condition of being subjugated right now by a Semite king even though this particular group of Semites were not the Hebrews well within no time Joseph it says is made prison, a supervisor over all the prisoners and by the way we'll close out here tonight although the concept of prison is one that seems to have always been part of our society it wasn't part of everyday society in Joseph's day Okay. Prison didn't exist among most of the Canaanite societies. And it didn't exist among the Hebrews. God protected Joseph even though he was locked up. And interestingly, we're going to find out in the next chapter, chapter 40, that Joseph was not kept with all the regular prisoners. He was being kept actually in the home of the prison captain, though it was some kind of dungeon or basement of some kind not the normal household living quarters. But just as important was that without his knowing it, Joseph was proving his trustworthiness to the very man who had locked him up and undoubtedly 
to all who came into contact with him. This was going to serve him very well because God was going to do something astonishing with Joseph. God's governing dynamic number two. Divine providence is the central theme, we're going to say, of Joseph's life. And next week we'll get into that as we begin chapter 40. Okay, that'll do it for tonight.